Welcome everyone, this is Islam for Christians, episode 126, Quran, Surah 85, Al-Baruj, The Mansions of the Stars. By the sky full of constellations, and the promised day of judgment, and the witness and what is witnessed, condemned are the makers of the ditch, the fire pit filled with fuel, when they sat around it, watching what they had ordered to be done to the believers, who they resented for no other reason than belief in God, the Almighty, the praiseworthy, the one to whom belongs the kingdom of the heavens and earth, and God is a witness over all things. Those who persecute the believing men and women, and then do not repent, will certainly suffer the punishment of hell and the torment of burning. Surely those who believe and do good will have gardens under which rivers flow. That is the greatest triumph. Indeed, the crushing grip of your Lord is severe, for he is certainly the one who originates and resurrects all, and he is the all-forgiving, all-loving, Lord of the throne, the all-glorious, doer of whatever he wills. Has the story of the destroyed forces reached you, O prophet, the forces of Pharaoh and Thamud? Yet the disbelievers still persist in denial, but God encompasses them from all sides. In fact, this is a glorious Koran recorded in a preserved tablet. And now the Arabic as recited by Saad El-Gamdi. وهم على ما يفعلون بالمؤمنين شهود وما نقموا منهم إلا أن يؤمنوا بالله العزيز الحميد الذي له ملك السماوات والأرض والله على كل شيء شهيد إن الذين فتلوا المؤمنين والمؤمنات ثم لم يتوبوا فلهم عذاب جهنم فلهم عذاب جهنم ولهم عذاب الحريق إن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات لهم جنة Thank you. 
In many ways, this seems to be a very typical early Meccan surah. It starts with saying, by the X, Y, Z. Then it gives warnings of heaven and hell and the day of judgment and all of that. You've seen this before. And it really can start to run together, which obviously is not the intent. But it happens, particularly when you go through the Quran the way we are going through the Quran. And so it starts to seem like some kind of creative rut, like a religious version of what a journalist would call a file lead. And I sympathize with this. I used to be a writer. It's a pattern I am intimately familiar with. And this happened a lot back when you had to produce copy every day. And sometimes you can really get into a writing pattern and you just don't really break from it because frankly, it's easier. You only have so much mental energy to expend. And when you get into that kind of a rut, it doesn't stop until a reader or your editor says, hey, I see this pattern. Now break it up. And if you lead one more story with a contrast paragraph, I am going to chuck my keyboard at you. And so, if you are thinking like this at this point, just hang in there. There is more variety coming. However, there is plenty of uniqueness within this Sora, even if you may be growing tired of the format. For one, this does basically have a single subject, the subject being religious persecution. Like I said, this is an early Meccan surah, so Muhammad is experiencing some less than spectacular results with his ministry in Mecca. And as would happen in the ancient world when people did not like your religion, some people would go way past calling you a liar or a kook or a charlatan. They would literally try to destroy you. So here we had the Quran sort of warning against disbelief, but much more so condemning those who hate people simply for what they believe, and then warning with examples of what happens to those who engage in religious persecution. This surah condemns Thamud and Pharaoh. Now, you're familiar with Thamud if you have been listening to the Quran episodes lately. I told you it would come up several times, and here it is again. And then there is this thing with uh, the people of the pit, right? The real meat of this surah leads with verses 4 to 7. These people of the ditch or the trench, it literally says, 
those responsible for the pit of fire abounding in fuel. Now, who are these people? Well, you could make the assumption here, we're talking about the people of the pit or the ditch or the trench or um, the pit of fire abounding in fuel. You could make the assumption this refers to a specific historical event. After all, the Quran here actually does reference Thamud and Pharaoh later on in the Surah. These are very specific examples, but many actually think it's more likely that this thing about the people of the pit, it's setting a theme for those later examples rather than just starting a list of historical examples. Now, why do they think this? First of all, no event is actually named. And second of all, you should know that most of the commentators I respect they really go out of their way to tell people that this isn't a historical event. This thing in lines four to seven, this thing about the people of the pit. They say this is a parable, not a historical reference. There's a whole list of events that some other commentators have thought this may refer to, and it runs the gamut. It's basically anything with a persecution and some fire. Say this could be it. Um, so I should at least tell you about one of those because the, the most popular of these comes from the Arabian region, unsurprisingly. So whether you believe this is a real event or a parable, that's up to you. But if it is a real event, it's probably this thing. Now, back in the day, there was a sizable community of Christians down in Yemen, south of Mecca. Now, as usual, I should warn you, these are probably not Orthodox Christians as we would know them. That's Orthodox with a lowercase o. But I believe they were the closest Christian community to Mecca, at least by land. Now, about a hundred years before Muhammad, the king in this city called Najran. The city is called Najran, not the king. So the people of Najran, they were Christians, and the king converted to Judaism. And then he demanded that all Christians in the city convert to Judaism as well. Now, historically speaking, I mean, even outside the Quran, this is worth noting by itself, because it is very unusual. Everything about this story is unusual and historically backwards, or maybe ironic, you could call it. You have Christians in Arabia seen as being victims by Muslims, and then you have a bloodthirsty Jewish king running his own inquisition and demanding that Christians convert to Judaism. It's wild stuff. It's interesting. If, if nothing else. Anyway, in the end, this king burned as many as 20,000 Christians in, allegedly, flaming ditches of fire. So, you see why Quranic commentators may see a link there. The word in Arabic is uqdud, 
a trench or a ditch or some kind of linear thing that you dig in the dirt. And whether this is a a parable or an actual historical event being talked about here in the Quran, the people of the ditch, not the people in the ditch, the people that did this to them, they clearly did a terrible thing and are being denounced here in what looks like it could just be even broader, a, a general denunciation of religious persecution, you know, in addition to maybe a specific criticism. Like many Quranic surahs, it's, it's a warning. There's a warning to the currently powerful that God will turn around their plans and what they do now will basically come back to bite them in the backside. Almost literally, it actually kind of says this almost literally, line 20 says that Allah encompasses them from both sides. That's in English. But in the Arabic, it literally says, from behind them. It's saying that when they least expect it, these people, these powerful, almighty people, or so they think, these persecutors of believers, they're going to get bitten right in the rear end, and in a way they never saw coming. This happens often. This isn't actually a big surprise. We've seen this happen. Uh, There's even grand historical examples, like Rome would probably be one of the greatest. You know, Rome in the early days, they were the greatest persecutors of Christians and the ones who murdered Jesus himself. You know, that to think that in a few hundred years, the empire would be usurped by the followers of the man they crucified, and not by some rebellion, but by a sudden decree from an actual Roman emperor. That's wild. And one can't help but think of some more contemporary examples of evil places where religious people were persecuted, such as uh, the old Soviet Union which was an atheist state hostile to all believers, Christians, Muslims, whoever, could they imagine that one night the Berlin Wall, just it opened, and then a few hours later, people are dancing on top of it. And in short order, the entire Soviet house of cards crashed to the ground in spectacular fashion. It's great stuff. Also makes me wonder how the Chinese Communist Party is going to fall one day, hopefully soon. You know, what surprises in store for them? Okay, moving on. I have a couple more things to go over on this one. Now, first off, there is the title word here, the title of the Sora, Al-Buruj. You might have noticed that I used the title Mansions of the Stars, but that phrase never appears in the text. It is actually there, but I used one translation for the title and another for the main text. The Al-Baruj, which is in the title and in the first line of the text, it basically means something tall, something built way up there. A Baruj could be towers, 
castles, skyscrapers. You may be familiar with the tallest building in the world, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It's the same route. And this word is also used for constellations of stars. Why? Well, because it's up there. And I assume it has to do with the ancient conception of the sky and the heavens. Because to an ancient person, it could seem like the stars were basically built above them. They, they would have had a very Earth-centric notion of gravity, <laughs> you know, and they'd be worried, hey, these things could easily fall to Earth. I mean, it would just look like something that was built on top of you. It would have been really disconcerting in a lot of ways and very mysterious. If something was holding them up there. What? Well, we'll have to argue about that. But the point here is they're like buildings that way in the sky, not something out there but something on top of us. So, given that some will call Al-Biruj the mansions of the stars, why? Where do mansions come into this, for one thing? Well, first of all, I, I gotta say, it sounds cool. The mansions of the stars. I don't even know who came up with that, but it's brilliant. And second... It accounts for the ancient conception of the stars and the heavens, rather than our modern understanding. So, you look up at the sky. That's not really a constellation. That's not things kind of being moved by this invisible force of gravity that we totally understand. You look up at the sky, particularly an ancient night sky that didn't have all this light pollution that we deal with. You'd look up and you'd say, hey... That looks like a collection of elegant mansions in the sky. So often you'll, you'll see the mansions of the stars as the title for the surah. And then you look down in line one, you have this same Arabic word. But the text in the translation is a little less grandiose, like constellations or collection of stars or some other words that refer to what is seen in the night sky. But the mansion of the stars? You can't beat that. <laughs> Which is, I think, also why the great Marmaduke Pickthall actually just went ahead and said the mansions of the stars in the text, because why not? Now, one more thing here. This surah ends with the words, recorded in a preserved tablet. Now, what does that mean, to be preserved? Well, in a systematic sense, what I mean, that is to say, in a theological sense, it's not super clear how, when, and precisely by what means the Quran was revealed to man are not made clear by the Quran itself. I should clarify, what I mean is the larger theological sense of these things. Because practically, we know the answers to these questions. How? Through Muhammad. When? Starting in 610. By what means? Uh, well, kind of through Gabriel. Now, those things are known. They're kind of obvious. But what I'm 
getting at here is the larger picture as in how, how was this actually transmitted as in what specific role did Muhammad play? How much of him, if anything is in the Quran, when did it happen? As in, is the Quran eternal and uncreated the way Jesus is in Christianity? By what means? What exactly is the relationship between the Quran and God? The essence, uh, the spirit or mode of transmission. Things like that. And in that sense, there is a great deal of ambiguity here. Again, this is another aspect of Islam that is not developed in any kind of authoritative way. I mean, it is developed, but you know, there's no Nicene Creed that Muslims say every Friday. This is okay, this is it. You know, there's varying interpretations and various ways people will look at this. If this were a Christian argument, for example, it would have spawned ecumenical councils like Nicaea, etc. It probably would have resulted in various schisms and maybe even a war, probably a war. But in the Islamic context, they're okay just letting it remain undefined, at least in an official capacity. Not that people haven't gone over these things, but there is no creed telling people what specifically they are to believe about these specific things. They don't really have a choice anyway, because, I mean, these days, and it's been this way for quite a while, what single authority is going to tell the people, hey, this is it? Anyone who says otherwise is a heretic. I mean, you have majority beliefs. Like, I think I could safely say the majority of Muslims believe, that, at least the ones that think about these kinds of things, that the Quran is uncreated. However, this is usually said with some sense of humility, you know, in that they'll say also, well, God knows best. It's not something that's going to be codified, again, like the Nicene Creed. <laughs> All right, back to the preserved tablet. That's what started this tangent in the first place. The idea here, this is the last line of the Surah. The idea here is that the Quran is not some passing thing. It is eternal. It is forever. Again, whether that's from date of revelation forward or dating back to the beginning of time, that's a different discussion. More definitively, this is, it's God's promise to Muhammad about the endurance of what is being revealed, that it will last, that it will remain forever. And it stands out because, at least to me, because it's extremely similar to Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in both instances, we have an eternal promise. And the use of stone, be it Peter, Petros in Greek, which comes from Petra, 
which means rock, or the concept of a tablet for the Quran, something etched in stone. And then the Quran uses the word preserved when referring to the tablet, obviously a metaphorical tablet, a word that can mean to guard or to protect in Arabic, hafiza. This is the same word used for those who memorized the Quran. So in a way, they are like a stone tablet. So in both cases, the idea here is that what God is doing, this is something big, something huge, and something eternal. And really, in both cases, that promise has actually stood the test of time. Thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Insha'Allah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.